Welcome to Goiter Dialogues by the Goiter Institute, Max Müller Bhavan, New Delhi. Our podcast where we talk about art, culture, education and civil society with people from all walks of life. So get ready for some interesting conversations with some very interesting personalities. Hosted by Puneet Kaur. Hello, guten tag and welcome to Goethe Dialogues once more. Our guest today is Mr. T.C. Rangachari. Mr. Rangachari, in his last of thars, officially was our ambassador, the Indian ambassador to Germany, to France, before that also to Algeria. He's also served as Deputy High Commissioner in Pakistan. Before that, he's done stints in Hong Kong, Algeria, etc. So we're very happy to have you with, today with us, sir. Welcome to Goethe Dialogues once more. Let's start at the very beginning in the year 1947. You are a child of independence. So India in 1947 and today India in 2022. What changes do you see? Thank you very much. First of all, uh, let me thank you for uh, inviting me uh, to this uh, dialogue. It's uh, always a great pleasure to be in a situation like this where one can recapitulate Uh, turn the pages of history so to speak in one's own mind uh, because a lot of what goes on in uh, one's personal and professional life uh, doesn't always get recorded but the impressions are part of that history which is uh, which goes to make even a nation's history and as you said quite rightly 1947 i was born just 3 weeks after india's independence so in a sense the story of my life runs concurrently with the story of in independent india which is also now 75 years old of course the immediate years after the independence uh, the memory is very hazy because the there is not much that one can absorb and retain uh, from very early childhood but what i do recall is india which was uh, very very poor um india that was developed in parts but developed in a way in which it uh, <clears throat> did not facilitate uh, too much of economic activity uh, the roads for instance even the roads that would be connecting one district headquarters to another district headquarters as you drove along it went through extensive rural areas forest areas and on many an occasion when we were driving on those roads we could see deer uh, we could see uh, fox um, we could see a mongoose a variety of animals all of course uh, non lethal animals so to speak but they were still very much part of the environment and the life around us i also recall when i must have been maybe 4 or 5 years old we stayed in a government circuit house in a district called amaravati which is still there in maharashtra in a place called chikalda i think the name is now slightly 
modified and there in the night they were uh, uh, these these uh, tigers of course still relatively small in uh, size who would be roaming around outside uh, did did us no harm and we were not in any physical uh, threat so to speak but still that was part of the ambiance of day to day living at that time and today in fact very close to that there is a tiger sanctuary called mm-hmm. melghat mm-hmm. and so that was the kind of environment at that time india's population was around 350 million which is about 1/4 of what it is now uh, india's gdp was uh, about 20 billion dollars which is even in terms of percentage terms when you look at something like 3 trillion now so maybe 150 times less or 1 150 times uh, of what it is today and so on uh, india hardly made anything uh, most of the products were either imported or uh, they were sourced from sources which were basically cottage industry uh, was what was the the economic activity our agriculture also the production was very low and from that base today when you look 75 years down the line you see that in agriculture india is today either the number 1 or number 2 in virtually every single agricultural economic activity whether it is production of cereals whether it is production of food grains whether it is horticulture whether it is floriculture fruits milk we have overtaken the united states some years ago in production of milk is an enormous amount of progress that india has made in the course of these 75 years and of course there is a great deal of quote unquote development that has taken place and i am putting that in quotes because it has come at a price the environment that i am talking about that i can recall when i was a small child is no longer there as i mentioned to you there was a time in my lifetime when the tigers were roaming free mm-hmm. and are now in sanctuaries protected sanctuaries so they have to be protected from men those days men <laughs> human beings had to be protected from, from right. tigers interesting it seems as if we've come a long way in these 75 years though not far enough many would say but that's a discussion for another day i'd like to do a bit of a jump from 1947 in the early 60s uh, you joined then hindu college for your uh, university education that's right. right now delhi university in the 60s and even in the 70s was a quite a politically charged campus uh, there was a lot of activity politically in those days uh, unlike today i would say um, so tell us a little about that you were also active in it i think well actually if you look at the 60s in fact right through 50s 60s 70s um india was across the board politically extremely active i think one of the factors was that having been part of the independence movement and people having been told again and again and again by the leaders of the freedom movement the national movement that they should participate in public life that they should participate in political life and having actively participated in order to drive the british imperialist colonial presence in india it had got almost ingrained in people's blood that they had to be part of 
public activity they had to be part of political activity and then the political parties also at that time except for the congress and the congress itself was really an agglomeration because it had people of virtually every hue um you had people who were right wing who then later on broke off and became swatantra party you had the left wing who later on became samaj uh, socialist party so there was a praja socialist party and then there was a samyukta socialist party then you had the communists who of course existed as an independent party even prior to indian independence but then there were also those elements who shared the thinking of the communists who were part of the congress now therefore 60s by the time you got to 60s and 70s it was not unnatural that that kind of uh, political uh, participation and political activity would continue and as far as our generation was concerned by the time i got to the university in the mid 60s we were just about coming of age i joined delhi university in 1962 uh, and uh, i was in the university for several years thereafter uh, and that is the period in 1967 when there were elections general elections scheduled to take place by that time congress had been in power for about 20 years uh, pandit nehru was no longer alive he died in may 1964 uh lal bahadur shastri became prime minister but he also did not live very long thereafter he died in tashkent after the 1965 india pakistan war and the mediation effort by then soviet union uh, in tashkent and mrs indira gandhi had just taken over and general feeling in the country was of dissatisfaction with the progress india had made uh, a lot of problems like unemployment um uh, you know the the standards of living wages labor issues a variety of issues that were agitating and of course the young people had to be in the forefront because it was their future that would get affected by whatever policies the government adopted so that was one reason well one of the many reasons why political activity was very robust and the universities were the place where political activities manifested itself you're quite right delhi university at that time was uh, politically uh, very active uh, i remember that uh, very vividly because uh, some of us were uh, instrumental in in uh, organizing uh, some of the uh, demonstrations uh, for the first time since 1947 in fact and our issues at that time were mainly around education what kind of education should we have <clears throat> and this debate that is there even today uh, whether it should be pure knowledge whether it is applied knowledge how do your degrees lead to uh, jobs professions skills and so on these were very live issues at that time also and mind you it was the period also when india faced extreme food shortages uh, we were dependent more or less on uh, and our total food production at that time was somewhere around 45 50 million tons which was barely enough to feed the population uh, in 1970 uh, the indian population around 600 600 million and india's gdp was around 60 billion and clearly very inadequate for a population that size and now before that it was even less and it's only after that phase that the green revolution took place after that that production of food grains uh catapulted and and 
hugely increased around the country. And I remember when Lal Bahadur Shastri was the Prime Minister, he had given a call for Miss a Meal. So once, a, once in a week, mm. he had asked all Indians to miss a meal. That is not to have a meal at all. And then there was also a non-cereal day. That is, you could eat vegetables, you could eat fruits if they were available, but you would not be eating cereals because there was a real shortage. Today it would be done for health. <laughs> Well, if the choice really was between not eating anything at all and eating whatever little that was available. Yeah. So that was the kind of atmosphere in the 1960s and um, 50s, 60s almost till I think till about mid-70s. Then the whole um, political landscape changed Change. because emergency came, issues became different. And also by that time, you know, the young generation had moved on to other issues that they could agitate more effectively. Uh, in anti-government protests or in a political manner, create new political awareness, etc. and so on. So yes, Delhi University was very, very politically active at that time. and But we had some excellent vice-chancellors. Um, when I joined the university, Dr. C.G. Deshmukh, who had once been the finance minister, he was the vice-chancellor. Subsequent to him, uh, Professor K.N. Raj came, who brought about many, many reforms in Delhi University. And coincidentally, this year, Delhi University is celebrating uh, its centenary. Mm. And uh, again, as it happens, uh, Hindu College antedates uh, Delhi University by 22 years because we were established in 1899. And it was one of the three constituent colleges because of which Delhi University could become Delhi University. Yes. Otherwise, there would not have been any university. So a lot of reforms took place at that time, a lot of changes took place and we had some very, very good teachers. So Delhi University made a name for itself which survives to this day. Although today Delhi University is not in the top 10, it's just below the top 10 in the national rankings. So yes, politically very active but also academically very active and very robust. The Delhi School of Economics, for example, which was established in the 50s, produced a very large number of economists known the world over, including people like Dr. Amartya Sen. I just mentioned uh, Professor K. N. Raj. Uh, Dr. So, Manmohan Singh is an alumni. Dr. Manmohan Singh, who later on became the Prime Minister of India. You're quite right. So there were a lot of scholars who were in Delhi University, from Delhi University, and they contributed to making Delhi University the name that it was around the country. So you were at Hindu College academically, of course, a strong college. And after that, you said you were also politically active. You even led a strike there. Uh, you met Mrs. Gandhi in the process, you said once. <laughs> yes, that's true. That is because, as I mentioned to you earlier, the uh, issues that we were agitating around was uh, related was related to education. And education in a very broad sense. What had happened was that there was an education policy. And around that time, a commission had been established by the government of India. Subsequently came to be known as uh, Kothari, Kothari commission, commission because it was headed by Dr. Kothari. And there were many recommendations in that, which we thought at the stage where we were in the university, it would adversely affect our future prospects. And naturally, we wanted also that we should be getting education, which would help us in later life. 
not only in terms of what we might be able to get out of it in a personal sense, but also in a way that we would be able to contribute, should contribute to nation building. And that was uppermost in our minds because have, having been born just after independence, the values of the freedom movement and the leaders of the freedom movement wanting to build India into a strong, stable, prosperous country amongst the youth was still a very, very strong, dominant value. So it was in that context that we had organized some of these demonstrations and strikes and so on. The first time in Delhi University since 1947. And then later, in this was in September and uh, later in November, uh, Mrs. Gandhi, who had become Prime Minister, in fact, she became Prime Minister in January of that year. This is 1966 I'm talking about. Uh, she invited about uh, a dozen of us uh, who were student leaders in Delhi University for a meeting. And I still recall that that meeting took place in the cabinet room of the South Block. Um, many years later, when I uh, myself joined the government, I attended many meetings there in a completely different capacity. <laughs> but we had a very, very productive discussion. One thing I must say to the credit of Mrs. Gandhi at that time was, she was a very patient listener. And I must give her credit also because we, we were still very young students, very agitated in our minds. And I'm not sure that we always were very uh, correct in the kind of words that we used or the way we behaved because we wanted her to appreciate the sense of agitation that we came with. Uh, and some things happened, but not very much. Um, but, but then... You were heard. But you were heard. But... Sorry, yeah, she she heard us out. And not only that, she paid attention to what was being said. And also she set in motion uh, what could be done in implementation of the recommendations made by the Kothari Commission, which might in some way help us assuage our agitation, etc. and so on. But by the time all this actually transpired on the ground, um, many of us had left the university. That's interesting because today when students agitate, they're not exactly heard always by the government. There is a big change there. And when you think of the recent agitations in Jane, you'll say, it led to almost oppressive measures, I would say. No, I wouldn't say that. You no? see, the nature of uh, communication has changed. Mm -hmm. See, today one must uh, acknowledge the fact of the uh, one the media that has grown so extensively across the country, not just the me national media, which is in the English language, but also media that is in regional languages. Number two, social media. So people, and I'm talking of all sections of people now, not only the student community, everybody has a voice and people are heard. You see, you know, Frequently in newspapers, you will see a story about, for example, there was one case where somebody sent a message on the social media uh, traveling on a train about lack of availability of milk for a baby traveling on that train. And at the next station, milk was provided in that particular compartment because that story had, the social media had done its purpose because it reached the right people. And the right people then sent the instructions down to the people who were there at the ground level to rectify this. Now, all these was not at all possible at that time. A lot of communication really took place face to face. You had the alternative of writing a letter. 
you had the alternative of sending a telegram but it never really reached in time and i will tell you even after joining the service when i was posted in china for instance i would write a letter to my parents it would take about 10 to 15 days for that letter to reach my parents they would then respond to that and you to take another 10 to 15 days so actual communication turnaround time was anywhere from 4 to 6 weeks today yeah, it is instant and therefore yeah but what is happening is that whatever the problems are very often the problems come to light even before they have become a problem secondly the moment it becomes a problem it's all over immediately take this latest case that is going on i think this hearing today in the supreme court about hijab this agitation started in the universities it hit the national headlines and it has been taken up all within a matter of weeks now all this was not possible at that time yeah but you know i'm sorry to interrupt but you know that thing of being heard by the prime minister has a different feeling altogether that means you met mrs gandhi she heard you out then your that your concerns are addressed by social media which can quite often be quite distorted it's well, not the same thing but well, okay three things number one when you talk in terms of distortion if i myself am putting out a message i will not put out a distorted message unless i was trying to give it a spin um, which was unrelated to facts on the ground one number two it's not necessary that every single problem should be heard at the level of the prime minister what you need is that it should be heard at the level where remedial action can be taken number 3 the time taken the turnaround time that is very relevant take the admissions to the delhi university just now this uh, cuet as it is uh, come to be called the combined exam entrance test uh, there have been issues in regard to venues issues in regard to papers issues in regard to leakage of question papers etc some other shortcomings they have been become known instantly and they have been rectified immediately in a matter of hours now all this was not possible at that time because as i said you know communication turnaround time etc was very very prolonged elongated as compared to what it is now yes there is a certain satisfaction and what derives having met the prime minister or having met any minister and so on but you know that is very separate from getting a problem solved so yes i would agree that you know it's not as easy to meet the prime minister today even then it was not so easy but still yes you're right uh, at the same time if i'm interested not in the protocol part of it but in the substantive solution to a problem probably i am better off today than what i was 50 years ago okay let's continue from there <laughs> so the student leader from the 60s or 70s decided to become a civil servant was it something you did because that was the done thing at that time there weren't too many opportunities because uh, it was either you became a civil servant or doctor or engineer or was it something you actually strived to be it was one of your aspirations it was a calling <laughs> there were no jobs exactly you see um, in my own mind i had um, <clears throat> multiple alternatives um i was i was uh, i was running a newspaper uh-huh. in the university and i used to write for uh, uh, national newspapers so certainly going into the media was a 
possibility. Although at that time, uh, we didn't have institutions like the Institute of Mass Communications, mm. etc., which came up later. Um, and really, uh, joining a newspaper, etc., was very much a matter of chance. You could, uh, you might get the job, you might not get the job. And competition, as always, was huge, enormous. Yeah. So, that was one possibility. The other possibility was to teach. Mm. Um, and and uh, there is a story behind that also. We don't have time for it today. Yeah. But I might have ended up uh, teaching in the university. The third was the alternative of going into government. Now, those who trained to become engineers, doctors, etc., their career line was more or less determined. Engineers would go into one or the other of the engineering-related professions. A doctor would go into the medical profession and so on, or maybe to teaching, but teaching also in the medical colleges. For those who were generalists, as I was, because I was in the humanities uh, stream and not in the science stream, the job opportunities were very, very limited. One of the job opportunities was in the civil service for which there was an exam. And if I remember right, at that time, probably we used to have something like a 100,000 people applying for something like three to 400 jobs uh, at the central government level. And it was highly competitive. There was a, a system of examination um, and there was also an interview if you cleared the uh, the written tests. Uh, so I tried my luck with that. And as it happened, uh, they found me good enough <laughs> and passed me. So I joined the government. So you joined the Indian Foreign Service? Ah, yes, that is, that is, again, you had to give various options mm. in regard to which service you wanted to go to. I was very keen to go to the Indian Foreign Service because when I was in the university, I had learned about uh, three or four languages. We had enormous amount. See, the, that time, again, this is something maybe which is young people uh, may want to know uh, and may not know. There were hardly any distractions. There was no mobile phone. There was no uh, laptop. Uh, there was no internet. Uh, there was no communication. Forget about globally. There was no communication nationally. Uh, you could go to a movie, but how many movies can you see in a day or in a week? Um, you played sports, yes, but then once it became dark, <laughs> there wasn't much scope to play sports either. So there was a lot of time. And students, our classes began in the morning at about 8 o'clock and we finished by about 1 o'clock. So we had a lot of time. And the language classes used to take place either early mornings or late in the evenings. So at one point I joined... Uh, French, I joined Serbo-Croatian, I learned Russian, I learned Chinese. Oh. So having learned, and particularly China, Chinese, having learned Chinese, I was very keen because, again, if you go back to the mid-60s, that is the period of cultural revolution. And that is the period when China had completely closed itself up. So they didn't even have maintained their embassies abroad. They did not have people going in and out. The only way in which you could go to China was if you were working with in the embassy or with one or the other of the organizations which had a physical presence. And at that time, 
other than the Indian embassy, there was nothing. And even the Indian embassy was skeletal because we had just gone through the war mm. in 62 with mm. China. So most of the bilateral relationship had dried up. I remember that when I first went to uh, Hong Kong on uh, my way that to China. That was your first posting. My Chinese teacher uh, came to me because he also did not have an opportunity to go to China. <laughs> and he thought he would come to Hong Kong. He would at least be able to say he had been to one part of China. China. So that was the kind of atmosphere. And I must say, uh, God was gracious and uh, I succeeded in joining the, the the foreign service. And I asked for uh, Chinese, uh, which I had already done uh, in, in, in the university. So I got posted to China. So you were in Hong Kong and then in China. And that was when the Cultural Revolution was on. Mao Zedong was around. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Not only Mao Zedong, even John Lai was alive, Chuda uh, was alive, mm. and uh, in fact, if I remember right, except for the marshals, there were ten marshals in the Red Army, and out of the ten marshals, I think six or seven were still alive at that mm. time. Mm. And uh, when I first went to China, this was immediate, immediate aftermath of the famous Nixon visit mm. uh, in 1972. That was the beginning uh, of the China-American That time I was in Hong again. Kong and oh. we were watching the Nixon visit from Hong Kong. And then I went to China just a little after the Nixon visit. So the American uh, presence was just beginning to, to grow in, in China. And the first liaison of officer, the, the head of the U.S. liaison office uh, in Peking was George Bush Sr., who subsequently became president of the United States. Okay. And he used to play tennis and we would be at the club together. And uh, I still remember the first uh, 4th of July, uh, US Independence Day uh, celebration that he held. He was wearing jeans, and which was very, very different from uh, the usual diplomatic style because everybody was formally attired for these kinds of occasions. He had hamburgers served. And <laughs> In China. <laughs> grilled food and so on. And the Chinese were absolutely aghast. Because they were not used to this style of functioning. And of course, the Americans had a very ready excuse that they were not a full-fledged, formal, diplomatic uh, establishment. They were still a liaison office. Mm. Because that recognition, uh, mutual recognition, came a little later. Uh. Yeah, so life in China actually was very different from what it is today. It changed, actually, with the Nixon visit is when the changes started happening, isn't it? Well, Nixon's visit was only the uh, beginning, so to speak. Yeah. Things started changing, but things started changing really only after Mao's death. Mm. That was in September 1976. And the emergence of Tang. Tang had been, Tang Xiaoping had been the general secretary of the party going back to 1956. It's 20 years before Mao died. And uh, he had been purged during the Cultural Revolution. And uh, many years later, I had the opportunity to go and see the places where he had been uh, assigned to work as a mechanic mm. uh, from the exalted position of being General Secretary of the Communist Party of China. He was sent to work as, as a mechanic and it was a difficult life and there is a lot of uh, account in regard to how he lived those, through those period and so on. It's at that time when China started what they call the four modernizations, particularly the economic modernization, that lives began to change. And the old China, today if you go to China, when I go to China today, for me in my lifetime, I have seen a transformation 
I cannot recognize the China today as it used to be 40 years, 50 years ago. It's mm. completely transformed. It's, it's of course, country. for the Chinese people, it's a good deal because uh, their lives are vastly improved, um, more convenient, more comfortable, uh, better uh, pay, better standards of living, more facilities and so on, more food to eat, better clothes to wear, travel, everything. But at that time, the Chinese, it seems to me, were more egalitarian. Today, they are more driven by individual self-interest. And this was also one of the... Is that bad? Well, I think that is a question of judgment. Mm. You can say yes, you can say no. Uh, but this is something that Mao was trying to bring about a change. You might say he was trying to change human behavior, a very heavy human cost. nature. Well, in large countries, mm. see countries like India, countries like China, which have a huge population. If you're totally focused on the individual, then very often what happens is, is the community gets left behind. And just to give you one example, the inequality in China today is so, so high. Um, Tsinghua University used to come out on an annual basis with a Gini study. And some few years ago, they stopped doing it because they had at that point touched 0 0.59. And that was considered to be totally unacceptable because it was even higher than in the United States. So therefore, when you have very large numbers of people and you have a few who are very, very, very rich and there are many who don't have anything more than subsistence level, then it also becomes a question mark in so far as social and political stability is concerned. And that is why when you see uh, Chinese leaders speak today, they put a great deal of emphasis on social stability, although they don't speak too much about political stability because they believe that under the leadership of the Communist Party of China, China is politically extremely stable. But social stability comes into play because if you are going to have a lot of discontented people, a lot of alienated people, a lot of people who feel that they are not getting out of the system what they should be getting or what they deserve to get, then they might come out on the streets. And if people come out on the streets in large enough numbers, it creates a situation which can become even a threat to political stability. We saw that in 1989, different reasons. But still in 1989, during the Tiananmen uh, demonstrations, we saw uh, the kind of dangers it could pose. And the leadership could see those dangers as threatening the political stability within China. And that is why under Tang Xiaoping's leadership at that time, they took very, very strong still measures. Action. Right, but still, one would maintain that a lot, um, lot more Chinese live better today than ever before. So that is a positive side. In, in terms of uh, living standards and so yes. on, of course, yes. Yeah. And not only in terms of living standards, but in terms of education, in terms exactly. of health, health, in terms of yeah. facilities, yeah. transportation, travel, food to it. Of course, much, much better off. No question yeah. about it. Okay, let's move on from China. We've dwelt a lot in China. You did also a stint or two stints in Delhi. You were in the Ministry of External Affairs where you got a perspective from headquarters as to how foreign policies run. And more interestingly, you were also in Delhi. You were the chief passport officer. Would you say, looking back, that was one of the most powerful positions you ever held? 
as a chief passport officer everybody in india wants to get a passport <laughs> made <laughs> I, I remember I was the beneficiary at one point. <laughs> I wouldn't say that it is a quote unquote a powerful position. As far as the Ministry of External Affairs is concerned, it is the only post or only job we have in India which looks to the Indian people. Yeah. Because all our other assignments are essentially looking to the outside world. So in that sense this is one uh, one one assignment where ministry of external affairs can show its face to the indian people and either get its approval and approbation or its disapproval and criticism i'm glad that over a period of time a number of steps have been taken in order to improve the delivery of services and i don't see the kind of complaints coming today as used to happen 30 years ago and at that time uh, when i was there you know, there are very routine kinds of things for example i don't know whether your listeners would be interested in this but uh, there is a system of what is called police verification yeah. now the government over the years has simplified this particularly after the present government uh, mr modi's government uh, came in, 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 into in, in, into power in 2014 one of the first things they did was to introduce what is called self certification yeah. so you did not have to go to some government official to certify that this document that has been issued in your name is actually a valid document that might re- mean your birth certificate it might mean your address it might mean whatever uh, is required in order to get a passport that has facilitated a lot of transactions second thing is that i remember even at that time uh, in the ministry in, in the ministry of external affairs we had imposed the rule that if you do not get anything negative from the police within a matter of 4 weeks then it would be presumed that there is nothing against you and the passport would that be that was issued. an improvement that yes. facilitated a large number of people who were held up all that the police had to do was not send a report they didn't have to say yes they didn't have to say no so that was one of the tactics which for delay now all that was was removed and now of course it has become so much simpler because computers have come there's a lot of data which is available online so verifications can be done online and it's a very good thing that people's lives are becoming easier and in that sense i think the ministry has got itself quite justified and uh, valid uh, they it's got lot of praise for the changes that they have brought about in delivering services to the people definitely yes i think i can uh, testify to that i recently applied for a passport under tatkal and i got it in under 24 hours mm, there you are <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i remember at that time getting a passport what a nightmare it was yes. at one point and you were there so i, I remember everybody wanted to say passport office me kisi ko jante ho You know? you are quite right but you see we should also take into account the fact that uh, subsequent to uh, this is this is just before i became uh, the chief passport officer before that uh, the uh, somebody went to court and the right to travel was recognized as a right yeah. so the government again see coming back come from the from the uh, british days the citizen was always suspect so it was a matter of discretion whether he would be given a 
opportunity to facility to travel etc and so on that got removed through decisions both at the executive level as well at the judiciary level mm. okay okay so having that out of the way one you were also after that posted to new york at the united nations maybe did a stint over there today one questions quite often the whole institution of the united nations is it an effective institution especially when you look at the war which is now going on in europe that the united nations is pretty toothless and uh, would you agree with that do you think it has still has a place in today's world when you also think of the composition of the security council which hasn't changed since the second world war whereas the world has changed quite a bit since then to put it as an understatement well you know it's a little ironic you speak about the war in europe this is not the first time there's war in europe uh there was a war in the balkans earlier yeah. and if you go back it was a war in europe which led to the creation of the united nations now but I even other they, wars not just in europe is just an example i gave because it's the latest war but africa or even parts of asia we've yes, had yes, wars you're quite right and the united nations has not been on, very effective and the united nations has not been very effective in its interventions but then you see there are two ways of looking at it one is the un is basically a collective it's an organization where all member nations all nations are members and therefore it can be only as effective as the member nations want to make it effective the other side is that any time that the un wants to exert itself whether it wants to show its own quote unquote independent personality there is a check through the un security council which is again the winners of the, the permanent members have a veto and they are the winners of the second world war minus china uh, because this china which is at the moment in the security council is not the china that was in the security council at the time of its creation but leave that aside so the permanent five will never allow the un to take any action which is contrary to their interests yeah. and what has happened over a period of time is that these members permanent members are the ones who have been involved in a very large number of wars that have taken place around the world wherever the wars have taken place among members who are in the category of non permanent members the un has sought to intervene sometimes it has succeeded sometimes it has not succeeded there are instances in africa there are instances in southeast asia Uh, you remember the international control commission in cambodia uh, this is after the the french were driven out of southeast asia um korea the commission the un commission that worked in korea um the the work that the un did in africa uh, rwanda was a resounding failure um but then and even for that matter the balkans the it was the un umbrella under which the united states went uh, in the in the mid 90s and you see the again just to illustrate this point uh, if you if you saw uh, um, at the time of uh, at the end of the war in 1945 lines were drawn in europe who drew those lines it was basically the united states and the then soviet union okay neither of them in a sense 
resident European powers, though the Soviet Union and now Russia does want itself to be considered as a European power, the Europeans are not willing to accord that recognition to Russia or Soviet Union. I have a very interesting book on the uh, Paris Conference of 1919, written by, uh, well, okay, th those are details, in which Holbrook, who was uh, uh, President Bush's uh, uh, envoy for Afghanistan and so on, died unfortunately, in which he wrote that again in 1995, the borders in Europe were redrawn by a non-European. It's the American, the United States forces, as a result of which, you know, all those, when Yugoslavia broke mm. up. So, there is also, again, going back, let's say, to Jean Monnet. Jean Monnet said, Europe has to take interest in its own affairs because if you don't, outsiders will come and settle your problems. So, when we talk in terms of the United Nations, there is this problem of the permanent members, their interests, veto-wielding permanent members. Then you have the interests of large countries which are in a position to thwart whatever it is that the UN wants. To. Perhaps the basic problem in UN being ineffective is inability to agree. Now, India has had for the last 30 years, I think, a draft convention on terrorism. It's been blocked. Why? On a simple question of how do you define a terrorist? As if after 30 years, after so many countries having suffered terrorist attacks, you still need to have a definition of who is terrorist. Why? Because you might take the Palestinian cause, you might take some other cause and say that a terrorist is a terrorist in the eyes of one, but could be a freedom fighter in the eyes of the other. And this goes back again to the Palestinian mandate. Uh, Britain, the way in which they, uh, the way in which they viewed the then uh, Jewish leaders and so on. Where the UN has been successful, on the other hand, is in the economic side. And till when I was there, for example, it was one of the most effective areas of UN's functioning. And on legislation, international legislation in regard to social issues and humanitarian issues. Like? Well, human rights, um, issues relating to migrant workers, refugees, whole lot of issues like that. But now, in the course of the last 20, particularly after the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union, unipolar world, etc. and so on, what has happened is that the you take climate change, for example. The promises that were made in regard to availability of finance for the developing countries to switch over to newer modes of sustainable developments, um, weaning off from polluting uh, energy sources, etc. That finance has not been forthcoming. Mm. Uh, that is a change in attitude that has taken place earlier on in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, when I was there in the 80s in the UN, there was a willingness amongst the developed countries to share and promote the developmental interests of developing countries. Now, it's more focused on market orientation, opening up markets, investments, you know, private capital flows, etc. and so on, which has, which is by itself, there's nothing wrong in that. It's a parallel track. It can be very successful. We have seen that in China. 
the track has been extremely successful so it can be replicated but in order to replicate you also need to have some basic condition again i'll give you another example in in the 1990s uh, there were a lot of uh, there were african ldcs to whom the g7 uh, this is the original g7 for our listeners what are ldcs least developed countries. least developed countries african least developed countries the g7 decided that the money that loans that had been given to them they were so indebted that they were in no position to repay it. and in 1999 in a cologne conference of g7 they decided to forgive the entire debt i think if i am if my memory doesn't fail me i think there were 18 african ldcs who benefited out of that ironically within a matter of 2 to 3 years they were back again in debt okay, okay so you know the attitude of the developed world the rich world to share with the poorer countries with the developing world that has now changed the dimension is different the flow of finances is different the methodology and approach is different if you are going to be emphasizing the market principles private capital flow of you know fdi etc and so on yes that's a track that one can but maybe not everybody not every country developing country or poor country is in a position to take advantage of that okay, but each country in the end has to fend for itself you can't expect people to help you indefinitely we are earlier talking about individual and community yeah. interests in a different context this is also a question of whether it is individual country or together the world the planet we work together see we have i think in the in climate change which is very current sustainable development which is very current if we look at it in that context today nobody is saying that every individual country can do what it wants and everybody else will remain unaffected now if you say that india is burning coal or china is burning coal or the united states is using oil or whatever else and it's affecting the rest of the world then why not take the same analogy and say if there is a poor country where people are dying that also affects me though my people are not dying so i think this is something which requires a approach maybe a changed approach or maybe i'm not even no i think change is not the right word i think that exists the thought has been there in the un system itself otherwise all those development strategies international development strategies that have worked out in the 50s 60s 70s they would not have been possible today you need a political will to look at problems of the world as a problem that has to be solved together together mm-hmm. and once you come to that conclusion then whether it is hunger whether it is food security whether it is climate change sustainability of different kinds all of this will fall fall in one or the other pocket and then you can see what it is that individually and collectively we can do to help each other talking of problems then you were deputy high commissioner in pakistan as well yes and that is a country with which we've had a very problematic history for the short 75 years of your birth <laughs> since <laughs> you've been born <laughs> now uh, instead of looking at the political side i would prefer here that we looked a little as to how was it to be in pakistan as an indian vis-a-vis the general people the ordinary people to stay in pakistan as an indian 
Well, what I'm about to say is probably not very typical because we had a great time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of course, times were different at, uh, when we were there. I was there from 1986 to 1991. And, uh, It's a long time. Uh, probably I earned myself a footnote in history for the longest single tenure. <laughs> <laughs> in Pakistan. <laughs> <laughs> in Pakistan. <laughs> But, uh, you know, things were... There was still the generation, which was the post-partition generation in Pakistan. And the difference between the post-partition generation, when I say post-partition, I meant those who had living memories of India mm. uh, as against those who had no living memories of India. For all the problems, whether it is political or whatever else, there still was a certain degree of goodwill between the people of India and people of Pakistan. And uh, I mean, we were in some ways, well, in some ways, many ways, we were beneficiaries of that goodwill because uh, our doors were open and their doors were open to us. So we had a huge network of friends. Uh, and I'm happy to say that even today, what is it, 30 years down the line, we still have friends who maintain connections and communicate with us. Every time they visit Delhi, they let us know. Because uh, I haven't been back to Pakistan in, the, in these last 30 years. So where the change has taken place, to my mind, is essentially because of this entire approach of terrorism. The When... when uh, it becomes evident to the people in India that some totally anonymous person is willing to come lose his life and kill a lot of people in India whom he has not known. He will never know. And he has nothing to do with them, which is a pure act of terrorism. We saw that in Bombay 2611. None of the fellows who came from the, the 10 or 12 people who came, had any knowledge at all of India, had never been to India before. And yet they came and they went to one of the, some of the poshest places in Bombay and just opened fire. They knew none of the people whom they killed. They had no personal, they had no institutional, they had no national enmity against them. Now when that happens, That shakes public confidence. Otherwise, I remember there were there were. I remember when we were there. Uh, there were so many times our cricket team came there, and they were welcome. They were very warmly welcome. And there were occasions when the Pakistanis would say, "They don't. You don't have enough people, so we are going to cheer for your team because your team also <laughs> must have support." That was the kind of thought process. Now, that has changed. People have become very suspicious. Because even in the worst of... Uh, see, when I was there, we sent tourist groups from Pakistan to Jammu and Kashmir. And it was that kind of atmosphere where it was possible to do these sort of things. Not, 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 not today, anymore. because see, and again, I would put, if there was one factor to blame, it is terrorism, because they are attacking, they are killing people who
whom if you see if you know somebody you have a grievance and then you want to take revenge you may agree with it you may disagree with it but you can understand that there is some motive there there is no motive at all terrorists don't have motive against people who what did the what was the motive against all those people in the world trade center in new york when the twin towers were knocked down it's but the same that's thing that's exactly yeah. the point you see that this is what gives rise to suspicion at the level of people mm. and in a democratic country like india and pakistan also many ways is democratic uh, it's very difficult for governments to proceed mm. without having sufficient public support Yes there will always be a certain number of people certain percentage who will say no don't do this but if you if you are confident a government is confident of having a majority support then you would go ahead and try and achieve something but today that's totally totally absent so in fact there is hardly any relationship going and the other factor which also in a historical perspective one should keep in mind is that after the 1971 war bangladesh war what happened was that the two countries broke off diplomatic relations and all relations people to people trade economic everything was broken off till 71 the situation was that you had to stop something after 71 between 71 and 76 we had no relationship no diplomatic relations post 76 it became a question of we have to start this thing now it's always more difficult to stop and restart to start becomes that much if something is ongoing like for example trade was ongoing between india and pakistan before 71 it was difficult to put a stop to it but 76 you had to start and it's like putting the car in the first gear that yeah. is the most powerful gear <laughs> to get the car started and <clears throat> you are unable to do that yeah unfortunately relations haven't improved too much but i'm glad you said you had a grand time in pakistan that's also my kind of uh, memories of pakistan for the short visits that i was there i had a lovely time i think there you is never a understand no there is a difference between your uh, kind and my kind uh-huh. i'll tell you why uh-huh. punjabis you're a punjabi <laughs> and on both sides the punjabis are the same people they have links of language culture whole lot of other chicken tikka for example <laughs> you can bond over a chicken tikka i don't come from the punjab i come from deep south so i don't have any such cultural links <laughs> and common bonds that, okay. so therefore if mm. i had a great time my wife had a great time in spite of that then that is saying something which is very different from punjabi is having a good time on either side of punjab <laughs> okay I grant you that one. <laughs> so after the grand time in Pakistan, your next destination was Berlin. Am no, I, right? I went to Algeria. Algeria in between as well. Yes, And yes. And were you yes. a witness to the Arab Spring, or were you there before yes. that? After no, that? No, no, no. I was there much, much before that. In fact, uh, I I went there just on the eve of of uh, martial law being declared. <laughs> so my Pakistani friends used to tell me. that your government is very happy with you that you have got martial law removed in pakistan so they now sending you to algeria <laughs> to get martial law removed there i went there during very troubled times in mm. fact uh, the fln had been power this is 1991 mm. and uh, fln had been in power for something like 30 years algeria became independent in 1962 mm. and so 30 years they had been um, in power 
the economy was very run down and algerians in terms of their uh, you know brain power in terms of their uh, studies education everything very very knowledgeable people very wise people and yet for example in their budget exercise the price of oil at that time was around 13 dollars a barrel but they would in their calculations on the revenue side take a figure of 22 dollars 20 dollars now when you calculate your budget in this fashion then you are obviously going to run a deficit yeah. because you you are not going to be able to get the revenues that you are calculating you are going to get so many other algerian soil is amongst the most fertile soils in the world in roman times it used to be the granary of the roman empire but they were importing olive oil while they were you know literally thousands of olive trees where the olives would just drop to the ground and rot why because people were not willing to work in order to um, pick up pick those oils up and pick those uh, olives up incentives are missing you mean nationalization of agriculture ah. you are absolutely right oh. Oh. so people were not interested oh. and people were not doing enough the soil there is so fertile so fertile they were growing vegetables in adrar in the sahara desert to supply to algiers and i have seen personally uh, bananas were so expensive they were importing it from uh, latin america okay. and i remember uh, mentioning to the uh, agriculture minister there we had a memorandum of understanding between india and algeria on agricultural cooperations i remember mentioning to him that in india bananas are considered a poor man's fruit hmm and i actually ended up growing banana in the embassy residence hmm it grew and but he told me it can only grow in hot houses which is not true so you know algeria was a very rich country rich in multiple ways the economy could be said they had oil they had gas much more gas than oil um but not in sufficient quantities like qatar and saudi arabia and so on um and then of course there was a huge unemployment so the young there were a lot of young people so there was a lot of unrest and there was there was alienation from the fln and then came the problem of terrorism there also where the fis as it was known um, the acronym um, they you know were instrumental in promoting uh, terrorism in and very brutally suppressed also uh, so it were very disturbed times when i was there um and algeria was in the forefront of international relations they were the first ones uh, who opposed the move to have a you know the uh, what, what should i say consolidating the arab world around an islamic identity they said not a religious identity we should have a political identity, identity. yeah Which so they were in that there. sense yeah. very forward looking visionary they were you know for global uh, issues on global issues on the way in which for way forward for uh, the arab world very progressive but unable to sustain it 
and today now 30 years down the line i find that algeria is still not um, able to regain uh, the kind of stature the kind of uh, foothold it had in the 70s 60s 70s 80s yeah okay then berlin was next well in a sense yes because i came back to india after algeria and then i went to berlin in and between, that was i uh, was dealing with china for some time all those 30s. years that i was here mm-hmm. but 13 years after the fall of the wall you were in germany so germany had settled down you think by that time after the reunification or was it you could still feel it when you were in berlin that things are, are still coming together i was i went there in 2002 oh. and uh, you see the uh, at that time still uh, there was a much huge disparity between the east and the west mm. and you would recall that uh, chancellor kohl had made uh, the currency of the two countries at par yeah and that created a lot of unhappiness of course the east germans were very happy uh, the west germans were very unhappy because they felt that uh, their savings their social security money their earnings everything was being compromised in order to take care of the east germans who had effectively and essentially been communist mm-hmm. <laughs> part of the gdr um the other thing was development the level of development the investment that you needed for infrastructure uh, development in east germany uh, all had to come from the west and that was enormous amount and also on the eastern side they had a feeling you see their wage levels were lower than on the western side and there was also a sense including i found in humboldt university that uh, scholars from the west were being in preference to the scholars from the east and this was what as you said quite rightly about a dozen years after mm. uh, well actually not quite because the actual unification took place although the wall fell in 89 uh, the real thing is the last soviet soldier left only in 1994 and uh, by that time it was a russian soldier not a soviet soldier <laughs> um but those 10 12 years uh, it didn't it didn't uh, you know between the east and the west there was this difference in appreciation um there were also issues of of uh, ideology which still remain I remember for instance once uh, in Potsdam the Einstein forum had had a uh, had a discussion on um, whether stalinism was worse or nazism was worse mm-hmm. <laughs> and there was an east german representative and there was a west german representative of course both germans but background <clears throat> and uh, the east german said you might say as many bad things about stalinized stalin as you like and uh, stalinization etc and so on but to me i would not have been alive had it not been for that mm. true nazi germany meant he was a jew mm. so he said i would not have been alive they escaped virtually in the in the last few months before uh, um, you know just when the window closed so to speak mm. um so this kind of debate was still going on in uh, germany at that time 
the interesting thing was that uh, Germany was unified, so clearly very much more confident. Um, a major political issue, which was both domestic and international, had been resolved in FRG's favor, the Federal Republic's favor. So again, that that brought in a great... And one of the good, I suppose, illustrations of this was uh, the election of Angela Merkel as, as uh, chancellor. Um, she came from the East and yet there's nothing held against her um, in, in preventing her from becoming uh, the chance. She was very successful chancellor very successful from what chancellor, one can yes. see uh, in the course of the last 10-15 years. Um, overall, uh, Germany, uh, you know, at the same time, I think given the kind of uh, global economic situation, uh, there was also a feeling that Germany was at the same time a leader and at that same time they were also stagnating. There was this question of uh, Germanic peoples, the numbers, how they might get outnumbered, uh, issues relating with uh, related to the guest arbiters, um, issues relating to financing the EU. And those were the days when uh, Maastricht had just come into force. Uh, Schengen was just coming into force. And really, it was the, Brit the, the French and the Germans, or maybe the Germans and the French in that order, who were deciding the future of the European Union. And there was a great deal of resentment against that also. And somehow... Uh, the smaller countries in in Europe, uh, instead of being grateful to Germany for the fat checks they were writing mm. to underwrite their economies, were more critical of Germany than they were of France. And France was not doing anywhere as much as the Germans were doing in order to underwrite EU's assistance. Uh, I used to uh, joke with my German friends, you remember there used to be this acronym uh, for Poland, Ireland, uh, Greece, and Spain, pigs. So I used to joke with my German friends that, can you have your woods without feeding the pigs? <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> so, but that is what they were doing. But for Germany, uh, it would have been very difficult for these economies to survive, possibly for EU to remain economically as coherent as they did remain. And the lead role that Germany played in trying to keep everything together, that was very remarkable, very noticeable. Um, Prime Minister Vajpayee paid a visit to Germany when I was there. Chancellor Schroeder paid a visit to uh, India when I was there. And one of my big successes in Germany was getting Indian films <laughs> on to the German scene. When I went there, you know, they were all, television was showing Hollywood serials, Hollywood films and so on. So I used to go to various television channels. I went to uh, various movie financing houses, Hamburg, in, 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 uh, um, in, in uh, what is that province? Uh, Baden-Württemberg, uh, in Bavaria. Because the Germans had a law that you see, if you financed a film, the profits were tax-free, mm -hmm. which I think subsequently they changed. I think after that movie, um, 
लॉर्ड ऑफ द रिंग्स लॉर्ड ऑफ द रिंग्स मेड सो मच मनी सो द रूल गॉट चेंज बट आई वेंट एंड नॉक डोर्स एवरीवेयर सेइंग शो इंडियन फिल्म्स ऑन टीवी एंड माय फर्स्ट सक्सेस वाज कभी खुशी कभी गम दैट बिकेम अ ह्यूज सक्सेस इन जर्मनी यू मेड शाहरुख खान अ स्टार देयर आई वाज एट टीगल एयरपोर्ट एंड सम लेडी केम अप टू मी शी वाज वन ऑफ द पर्संस वर्किंग इन द एयरपोर्ट and she said i know you and i was a little taken aback because you know when you are in a outside india and suddenly somebody totally strange comes and says you wonder why it is that she would come and say to you and then uh, she thought for a moment and she said no it will come back and she went away and she came back a little later and she says yes i know i saw you on tv with that indian film so i i had the 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 people who were rtl had, had taken that uh, movie so rtl had asked me whether i would do some promos for okay. them on the tv so i said sure i do it that is where she had seen and then the movie was on the tv then you know it was shown on the hall two weeks later she met me again the same lady and she said oh i went and saw the movie and it's a fantastic movie and thank you very much so i said i'm glad you appreciate it then she said she said when you go and buy a ticket to the theater they also give you a tissue is tissue uh, papers <laughs> you know so i said why would they do that is it because you have to cry in the movies <laughs> <laughs> and after that this is of course some years down the line after i left germany i discovered this this film dawn it had been financed by german finance companies it was shot partly in in berlin partly in other places in germany so i was very don't glad don't do a thing with sharukh khan yeah. sharukh khan yeah. yeah don't do you're right yeah. so i was very happy that that one initiative which turned out to be very successful that was still continuing of course we had for a long time we used to get our films into the berlin film festival, festival. yeah but well, that's the festival circuit and uh, i think indian films especially the sharukh khan films became really really popular through the screenings that rtl had and sharukh became a star there i i hosted him three times in germany okay and this was you know public functions one was in uh, dusseldorf mm. not dusseldorf uh, that steel city essen mm. essen dusseldorf somewhere mm. there and once was in frankfurt and uh, the third time was where the three occasions when he came and he did these shows hugely yeah, successful yeah. he was a hugely. huge success there he was a, he's a star So Germany was followed by Paris. That's quite a treat, isn't it? That you get two big cities, Berlin and Paris, one after the other, as your postings. Yes, yes, yes. I always used to think that, uh, you know, if you are looking at Europe, then Berlin is the imperial capital, and Paris is the city of romance. Mm. Um, somehow, when you go to Berlin, it exudes power. and you go to paris uh, it's it's you know like very relaxed uh, friendly uh, love affection that kind of thing is almost in the, uh, my imagination surely but uh, yes paris was a change from uh, berlin but you know one fortunate thing was that whether it was in berlin or whether it was in uh, paris relations with india were very good in both capitals I mean, look at look at Berlin. You know, uh, historically, India learnt about Indian uh, uh, old Indian scriptures, texts, etc. through German scholars. Mm-hmm. You had people like the first 
नागरी देवनागरी स्क्रिप्ट बुक दैट वॉज पब्लिश वॉज पब्लिश इन जर्मनी बाइशलेगल आई मीन यू हैड पीपल इन बॉन यूनिवर्सिटी यू नो पीपल लाइक बॉथलिंग अर्लियर ऑन यू हैड मिशनरी कॉल्ड रॉथ देन यू हैड हरमन गुंडहट हु डिड ए मलयालम जर्मन डिक्शनरी एंड सो सो मीन दे वॉज वेरी वेरी रिच अकेडमिकली and the indologists the number of chairs on indology in germany were numerous france of a different kind the great deal of exchange of students professors lot of our people uh, went to france to study um and there was a great uh, education cooperation between the two sides as also with with the germans and snt cooperation and of course for a long time we had good commercial relationship mm-hmm. also with the french and defense was very strong space again very very strong so in that sense berlin to france there is not that much of a change in so far as india was concerned because the relationship was strong on both sides but purely in terms of dealing with uh, the local people and the government and so on germans have a very distinctive personality when small example you know before i went to paris i asked my german friends um, i said look what should i be doing and what should i not be doing since i am going from germany they said one thing is they said germans are very very punctual if you give a time of 8 pm for somebody to come to your house he will ring the bell exactly at 8 pm not at 801 not at 759 he said in france if you go there at 8:00 you will find the hostess hostess are not ready so give 10 minutes minimum before you go after the appointed time i i saw this practically also very relaxed and but you know on another front this whole notion about germans being very dour etc not true at all i made a rule that anybody who came to our house would have to tell us at least one joke <laughs> and somehow the word got around so people would and i tell you german sense of humor is amazing it's as good as any anywhere in the world other french of course are naturally very effusive and i mean so we had a good time both in in germany and berlin purely in cultivating our relationships promoting india's relations there and also i think in both countries there is a great desire to know more about india and political leadership university leadership people to people at all levels so i think it was very enriching experience being in both places okay after talking to you for about an hour so one gets the impression that the diplomatic service is a very glamorous service it used to be it used to be around the time when i joined the service really there was very little uh, there were very few ways in which you could travel outside um without you know outside of the let's say foreign service or outside even within the government travel outside was very very, very restricted but now 50 years down the line uh, 
everybody is traveling all over the place. Yeah, but diplomats have a special so, status, isn't it? You are a diplomat well, in a country. It comes with a responsibility. I mean, if you were to ask me whether I would recommend a diplomatic service as a possible profession for a young person, I would say yes. Yeah. But let us make a distinction. You you talked about glamour. That's yeah. where I was. Yeah. See the glamour of travel. That is there without responsibility for a private citizen. Mm. For a government official, a diplomat, that responsibility is a very, very integral part of living outside. Almost to the point where, you know, 24 hours you have to be con conscious that you have to behave in an acceptable manner. Acceptable as a foreign diplomat living in that country. You Because in many ways, this is the only exposure the local people have to officialdom and Indian official. And if you behave in a way which seems to them to be not the most appropriate, then it is adversely reflecting on Indian official. That's got nothing to do with the people. Mm. You know, Indian people can go anywhere and do whatever and it doesn't matter at all. So that is one difference. But yes, I would. And apart from everything else, I think it is very important today, India's role in global in the global affairs it is increasing earlier on india was punching far above its weight 50s 60s whether it was you know decolonization apartheid and racism developmental issues non alignment g77 all these kinds of things india was punching far above i just told you that you know our gdp was 60 billion our population was 600 million that is where we were 50 years ago. Today, you're looking at an economy which is fifth largest in the world. 1.4 billion people. You look at our neighborhood. You see the situation that some of our neighbors are in. You look at the Asian uh, continent. You look at, <coughs> for example, the latest, you know, what the prime minister has been saying to Putin in regard to the war in Ukraine that this is not time for war. It is getting now quoted by the US president, by the French president, and so on, back to the world and to Putin and so on. That kind of weight that India has come to have, for an Indian diplomat to carry that weight forward and as a result, improve India's relationship either at the bilateral or multilateral level or do other good things, whether it is for India or with India, that is of a very different kind. And therefore, it's a very important responsibility. Then there is the question of living in different cultures, civilizations, language, literature, customs, traditions. At a personal level, you gain enormous yeah. amount. It's a very enriching experience in life. And to be able to make lifelong friends amongst people around the world is also a blessing. So for all these reasons, I would say, yes, this is definitely a career option. But don't look upon it as something which is as, 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 as you know, glamorous job because a lot of day-to-day -day routine work is totally, totally devoid of glamour. It is at times very, very dull and boring. It has to be done. So, 
that aspect one has to keep in mind but you know being a representative of india i saw this when i first went to the united nations in 1980 i knew nobody and i walked into one of the committee rooms there where a meeting was taking place and there was a board india and i was sitting there and i as i looked around the room i did not know a single person and during the course of the day morning session afternoon session some 20 people walked up to me and said what does india think on this issue gradually they became friends but on that first day when they came and asked me that question i didn't have a clue as to who that individual was but why did they come to me that india board so india as india is what you are representing and that gives you such a huge start that the effort that you have to make in order to get around is that much less because you are india and for them you are india they are not going to go and check with somebody else to what does india think you are the one who speaking for india so in that sense it's a matter of great pride it's a matter of great joy yes a responsibility but also you get a great sense of achievement great at that note thank you very much it's been a very interesting walk through 75 years i have enjoyed it i hope you enjoyed it as much as i do and i'm sure our listeners will so thank you for giving us so much time and talking about your life so openly we've had a blast at least i've had a lot of fun listening to you thank you so much thank you very much for having me basically i have just relived my old memories <laughs> i don't know how much of interest that would be to your I'm listeners sure, but i I'm hope sure there will be thank you they so will much. find it of some interest thank, thank you, you very much thank you for your time thank, thank you. you so much thank you for listening we hope you had an enjoyable experience catch you in the next episode